Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stamore Major. In this episode, we're continuing William Creelock's Vagabonding Under Sail, and we're on Chapter 9. Chapter 9 The Land of Beyond. Have you ever heard of the land of beyond that dreams at the gates of the day? Alluring it lies at the skirts of the skies and ever so far away. A quote from R.W. Service. Our first task when we reached Georgetown was to decide on our plans for the future. By the time we could leave Guiana, it would be May, which would leave too little time to sail through the Caribbean before the start of the hurricane season in July. If we were to avoid the risk of catching up with a hurricane, the only misfortune which could really put an end to our wanderings, we would have to keep out of the area till the season was past, and we could do that most easily and cheaply by remaining where we were. We had started to cast an eye round for jobs when we hit upon an idea which would give us the possibility of earning money without the dreaded tyranny of routine. Over the bulwarks lay a country about which comparatively little was known. The flat, coastal belt was the only area that was inhabited, and Georgetown was the colony's only city. Beyond it stretched broad rivers and deep jungles with small gold and diamond fields, and behind this again jungle-covered mountains where none but primitive Amerindian tribes dwelt in their remote reserves. Georgetown itself lies by the yawning mouth of the Demerara River, which has given its name to the sugar produced there. The town is not particularly attractive at first. Despite the very fine botanical gardens and some shady residential streets, the general impression is of a jumble of rather grotesque wooden buildings, with evidence here and there of Dutch influence without the orderliness which the Dutch usually impart. The layer of soft mud on which the town is built had hitherto prevented building with concrete or stone. In its streets, however, one saw the real life of Georgetown, for it is a city of people rather than buildings. We rubbed shoulders with Africans and East Indians, Chinese and West Indians, Europeans and occasional Indians, and others at whose origins we could only guess, and combinations of all these. In the roadway, cyclists and cars jockeyed for position with meandering wagons drawn by refractory mules, whose ears poked grotesquely through holes cut in the crown of a battered straw hat. Harsh sunlight glared on splashes of colour from the cotton dresses and kerchiefs of the women. The huge, tin-roofed market stood in the centre of the town, and along the street stood little wayside stalls. There was the man selling small stuffed alligators at the curbside, and the inevitable local asleep on the sidewalk. From the Indian and Chinese eating houses in the side streets, curry chow mian and garlic mingled their odours with the general smell of heat. The people of Georgetown have a reputation for hospitality, and we spent pleasant evenings in cool homes sipping the institutional drink of the Caribbean, the rum swizzle, and listening to the extraordinary clamour of the insects and the whistles of the tree frogs. It is seldom that a yacht visits Georgetown, and when Content sailed in on Easter Saturday, we were surprised to see a 75-foot British yacht, a converted Brixham trawler, lying at one of the quays. We had established contact within an hour of dropping the hook and found her to be the Arthur Rogers, in which a young couple, 
Tom and Diana Hepworth had sailed from England with a temporary amateur crew. They had been conducting a fishing survey for the government and were now awaiting the passing of the hurricane season before heading north. Tom and Diana had decided to spend the intervening months up one of the great rivers to work on their boat in peace and quiet. When they suggested that we accompany them in content, we readily agreed, for it had become apparent that Georgetown's hospitality would allow us to do little work of our own. The anchorage they had chosen was a remote, penal settlement, which had a convenient stelling, a wooden jetty. Tom and I hastened to the office of the police commissioner to get the necessary permission. The commissioner turned out to be a stocky, bald-headed, jovial individual with a square jaw and the voice of a bull. He was delighted to see us and most helpful, and the necessary permits were soon made out. Have you seen my tumblers, he said, when the formalities were over? Made them from Pepsi-Cola bottles. The great thing is that they don't break. He picked one up and tossed it nonchalantly over his shoulder. There was a horrible crash, and the tumbler splintered on the wooden floor. Abdul, he bellowed. A native prisoner sprang into the office. A heavy shower of rain burst outside, and Abdul streaked for the shutters. Sweep up the glass. Abdul abandoned the shutters. Not now, you fool. Close the shutters first. Poor Abdul was trembling. That one must have landed on its rim, he explained to us. Now, watch this. Another of the precious tumblers was whisked off the desk and over his shoulder. Crash! Abdul! Tom and I winced slightly and glanced at each other. We offered our condolences. At least there were no more tumblers on the desk. Sergeant! A massive Negro policeman came hurtling into the room and quivered to a standstill, flashing a salute. A Pepsi-Cola bottle, Sergeant. Very good, sir. Another salute and the door closed. Through it, we heard the sergeant's voice. Corporal, a Pepsi-Cola bottle. Down the stairs, the shout went out until eventually it reached a native prisoner. Through the window, we saw him in white smock and shorts padding across the yard. He came doubling back and the bottle was promoted from rank to rank until it entered the office escorted by the sergeant. The commissioner beamed at us. He was on sure ground now. This time, the bottle itself went over his shoulder bouncing across the floor, unbroken. The day was saved. We called it quits and left. Two days later, we were edging across the mile-wide junction of the Essequibo and the Marazuna rivers, following the eddying footprints of the Arthur Rogers. Nearly two miles ahead of us, the soulless grey buildings of the penal settlement broke the skyline on a low knoll. Here, 50 miles from the sea, the two boats were to spend many months browsing alongside the small wooden stelling. As we were going to be here for some time, Len felt once again that he should leave us for a while and go to the rescue of his business. We were sorry about this, but we knew that Len had only managed to come away in the first place by assuring everyone that we were bound on a six-month return trip to South Africa. This assurance had been difficult to maintain when we set off across the Atlantic, but there were no mail deliveries on the high sea, so why worry? It was decided that as soon as possible, Ernest and I, representing the photographic and journalistic departments of content, would set out for the interior on a minimum budget. Don would look after the boat and chase his beloved butterflies round the neighbourhood. Ernest included a net in our gear so that we could add to the collection. The journey into the interior started early one morning from the village of Bartica. 
We gathered together the impedimenta we had brought for our three weeks private safari and climbed aboard the lorry which was to be our transport for the first two days. Our first class tickets entitled us to a canvas seat in the fore end of the truck. Behind us was stacked a heterogeneous pile of baggage, sacks, oil drums, poultry and second class passengers. The roads in Bartica were mere earthen apologies and once out of the village the way was called a road only for want of a better word. During the first hour and a half we covered eight miles. The track cut into the jungle and we bumped and swayed on our way all day. A few butterflies with glinting blue wings and a span of four or five inches fluttered towards us between the sunlit walls of green. Ernest, remembering his promise to Don, brought out the butterfly net and was soon gesticulating out of the front of the truck. For a few minutes this caused some wonder to our fellow first-class passengers, three tough gold miners. Then the one sitting next to Ernest began glancing out to see how he was faring. Within half an hour, Ernest was sitting back while our gold miner friend leaned perilously far out, making wild swipes at any butterfly within reach and cursing freely each time he missed. Our only stop was for a few minutes at midday to allow us to eat our lunch by the side of the track. A heavy thunderstorm brought an early dusk and we splashed through the rain to the rest house at which we were to spend the night. These rest houses are scattered over the more accessible parts of the interior and are usually attached to and maintained by a small police outpost. They provide the traveller free of charge with a bed for the night and a kitchen in which he may cook his food. We slept the night beneath our mosquito nets with an oil lamp burning to ward off the vampire bats which exist in that particular area. Those playful little creatures are quite capable of drawing off a half pint of blood from a protruding finger or toe without even awakening the victim. Dawn, the next morning, found us in the lorry once more, the sleep being shaken from our eyes. By noon, we had reached the end of the road at Isano on the upper Marazuna River. Here, we shoehorned ourselves out of the truck and boarded a bateau, which would carry us for the next three days. These bateaus are 40-foot open boats with inboard motors, blunt overhanging bows and large steering paddles on each quarter. In the narrow creeks, they also carry a man in the bow with another paddle for added manoeuvrability. We found ourselves in comparative comfort on padded seats beneath a canopy and settled back to enjoy the scenery, or rather the trees, for they were all we could see. For three days we travelled in the boat and slept at night in rest houses. By good fortune we met Abel Correa, the lean young Portuguese who ran this river service, and who owned most of the stores in the settlements for which we were heading. Abel did everything he could to help us and to enable us to see as much as possible. He even appointed a guardian angel by the name of Smithy to watch over us. Smithy was perfect, a small, tough, local veteran of the First World War with grizzled hair and crinkled eyes. He produced hot meals for us on board, cleared away and washed up, and flew at the throat of anyone who dared to sit on our baggage. All this time we were chugging between dense walls of jungle. Sometimes on a straight stretch of river we could look far ahead and see distant mountains before a bend in the river shut them out again. Sometimes we saw rust-red howler monkeys sunning themselves in the trees. Through the ages the massive escarpments in the deep interior of the country have crumbled and receded 
and the broad rivers which thunder to the plains beneath have carried with them some of the rubble of rocks and gravel. Where this gravel has been deposited, in old riverbeds and anew, there diamonds have been found. The volume of diamonds produced by British Guiana is small compared with that of the mines of Africa, but the quality is good. A few companies work in the interior, but the expense and the difficulty of transporting machinery and the lack of concentration of the diamonds make their operation impracticable. Most of the diamond production comes from individual prospectors who live in strange isolated little communities. We were now approaching the area in which these settlements were scattered. At the end of three days, we reached Tumareng, the centre of the diamond area. The following morning, we were able to accompany the boat on its round of the settlements which cluster in small clearings on the banks of the river and its tributaries. There was little to indicate the presence of one of these communities until we suddenly swung round a bend of the river and saw the trodden earth of the landing place. The jungle had been cleared for a hundred yards and a path led from the water's edge to a small group of shacks clustered round a central store and rum shop. A curious group assembled to meet the boat, men in patched trousers, singlets and battered old hats, negro girls in dirty cotton dresses and shabby sneakers. The settlements exist simply and solely to cater to the prospectors, who are known as pork knockers. Nobody is quite sure how this name arose, but the men are a tough, bawdy, happy-go-lucky crew, and we like them. At one landing, a young lady gushed up to Ernest, Oh, Mr. Chamberlain, there's a snake you might like to photograph. Uh, a snake? Oh, yes, certainly. We trotted round to the back of the huts, where an eleven-foot camudi had slithered close to a chicken run. Ernest advanced to within a few feet of the camudi and took his photograph. Two fellows came forward and carried it away. Its head had been bashed in shortly before we arrived. Our objective was now the tablelands which lay beyond the escarpments to the west. In those regions lived only primitive Amerindian tribes, the aboriginals of South America. One white man lived up there alone, the district officer, with a vast area under his care. We wondered what manner of man he was. There was only one way of reaching these reserves, the Kurupung Trail, and no one who did not know the trail could hope to find his way there. We would have to find Indian guides. With the help of Abel Correa, we located a group of five Indian brothers who were returning to their village after working down in the Diamond Settlements. We engaged two of them as carriers and guides, being unable to afford more. A bateau carried us to the foot of the trail, then turned and disappeared round a curve of the river. It was to return to the same spot at noon, 14 days later, to meet us. We slept the night in a small shelter and early next morning assembled our caravan. Our guides made carrying cradles out of strips of wood and bark, which we slung on our backs with bark shoulder straps and a head strap round the forehead. This last was a great help, for with the slightest pressure from the neck, one could ease the strain on back and shoulders. Our guides were short and stocky with straight black hair and impassive, slightly mongoloid features. In our innocence, we shared our loads equally with them. It was not till some time later that we realised that these Indians, though not particularly strong physically, have tremendous stamina and can carry heavy loads for vast distances. They eat little on the trail, but drink a lot of sugar water. When everything was ready, 
we glanced up at the almost sheer face of the hill in front of us. Ah, we thought, nothing like life on the trail and all that sort of stuff. The trail lost no time in introduction, but galloped straight up the hill over twisted growths and rocks and loose earth. As we climbed, sweat seeped into our eyes and made our clothes sodden. It was oppressively hot, and our heavy backpacks made it seem even hotter. We gasped, stumbled, and clawed our way up until at last we staggered over the lip of the hill and lay sprawled ingloriously on the ground. The steaming South American jungles had lost a good deal of their glamour during that last hour, and we wondered vaguely what three days of this would be like. The word trail had conjured up pictures of forest paths and restful vistas, but in real life it gave nothing away. For two and a half days we saw nothing but trees, trees in the morning, trees in the afternoon, and more trees drooping over our hammocks at night. But as with seasickness, the unpleasantness is soon forgotten, and one remembers only the thrill and the experience. Though we were now on more level ground, our path ran over a floor of gnarled, twisted roots and slippery dead leaves and fallen trees. To find a little stretch of bare earth was as good as a rest. Sometimes we waded through streams or balanced along to Cuba's trees felled across the stream to form a bridge. At gradually decreasing intervals, we sat down to rest and eased the straps and shifted our packs. In the afternoon, heavy rain drummed across the trees and squelched out of our rubber-soled, canvas-sided bush boots. It was useless to try to keep dry, but large leaves laid on top of our packs kept the water from our belongings. At four o'clock, we carried on a comical conversation with our guides in Pigeon English, as a result of which we learned that it would be prudent to halt and build our camp for the night. With a shrug of the shoulders, which was intended to say, well, we could go on for hours, but of course, if you feel tired, we acquiesced and tottered to one side to watch operations. The Indians had no tools other than their broad-bladed, razor-sharp cutlasses, and no materials but those which grew about them. Two large fronds were lashed with creeper to the base of a tree, so that they drooped over us and provided temporary shelter for Ernest and me and the baggage. For a few minutes, there were sounds of hacking and slashing in the bush around us, followed by the reappearance of our guides with saplings and lengths of wood, strips of bark and large leaves. In less than an hour, our palace was ready. They had built a shelter about ten feet long and six feet broad, with a peaked roof and standing headroom beneath. The structure though fastened only with lengths of tape-like material stripped from the inside of lengths of bark, was rigid enough to bear the weight of a man on the roof without a tremor. We looked somewhat dubiously at the coverings of neatly laid leaves and fronds, for the rain was still heavy, but not one drop came through. Trying to recall half-forgotten Boy Scout lore, we struggled to build a fire with sodden wood, but succeeded only in littering the hut with spent matches. At last, our guides came over from their own hut and produced a fragment of resin extracted from a tree with which they soon kindled the fire for our galley. Dusk fell. The steam rose from our sodden clothes, draped around the fire. We sat on logs, sipping searing coffee made from the sweet water of a nearby stream and tasting slightly of wood smoke. We unpacked our carefully rationed supplies and cooked a supper of corned beef, onions and rice pancakes made with powdered egg and treacle. It was dark when our meal was finished 
and we lay back to enjoy the perfect relaxation of our hammocks slung from end to end of the hut. The rain had stopped now, and no breeze filtered into this world beneath the treetops. The smoke from the fire seeped through the roof of the shelter, leaving the night air clear and cool. An occasional friendly firefly glowed in the dark. We fell asleep surrounded by the gaunt gothic of tall trees in the moonlight, and lulled by the ceaseless light sounds of the jungle and the low voice of the grumbling brook. We rose at five o'clock the next morning, before the dawn had managed to penetrate the trees, washed in the stream, ate a hasty breakfast, and shouldered our packs. In clothes still damp, we trudged once more up the trail. For hour after hour we plodded, with head bent forward and eyes on the track. At noon, we paused to eat the ration of lunch we had cooked before striking camp. Sometimes we stopped at a stream to quench our thirst. Once or twice, we heard the extraordinary call of the bellbird, whose two-note cry might easily be mistaken for the tolling of a bell, even having the resonance of a bell. We spent the second night in a shelter built by a previous party of Indians after touching up the roof slightly. We had had a particularly long day and tenderly fingered the red wheels made across our backs from the bark straps. The third day, however, brought to an end our tribulations. At the end of the trail, we came upon a slow-flowing river and thankfully lowered ourselves into a dugout canoe which our guides had produced from the bushes. In the sunshine of the late afternoon, we paddled slowly with the current and then turned up a much larger river which crossed our bows. We came upon a small clearing on the bank where half a dozen huts lay scattered. Our guides told us that they knew the people of this village and that we could sleep the night there. The pointed bow of the canoe slithered over the mud and we disembarked. Ernest and I were shown to the newest and finest hut, which happened to be empty. It was a fine, sturdily built structure raised about three feet off the ground. The floor was formed of broad planks of hard bark and the walls were made by interlacing thin wide strips of wood. The roof was beautifully and intricately thatched. A sloping log with notches cut in it made a short ladder to the entrance. Our first task was to take our cutlass and collect sufficient wood to last the night. Then we built our fire on a large flat stone at the end of the hut. It was dark by now and the flame was our only illumination. The smoke drifted sweetly out through the eaves. We squatted on our haunches and cooked our supper and ate it gratefully and took our coffee to the doorway so that we might sit and watch the night deepening. There was magic in the air that evening, an intangible thrill in living that made it, for me at any rate, the climax of the whole voyage. Some of the Indians in the huts behind us may never have seen a white man before other than the district officer. Here we were in the midst of something encrusted with time, something deep and primitive which had not changed for centuries. No hustle or bustle, just peace. The natives lived the nomadic life they had always lived, hunting and fishing for a while and then moving on. The broad, slumberous river saw no change on its banks as it passed. The towering escarpment beyond it had always frowned on just such a scene, and the curious bark canoes had always nudged each other at their stakes, as did those close to the bank beside us. I found myself thinking of the awful bustle of cities and the sacrilegious shrill of telephones amongst which I had been 
such a short time before. Here, the whole atmosphere seemed to satisfy some nebulous, undefined longing. It offered something which simply was not for sale. I turned and went into the hut to sleep. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.